30 years ago, I was considering becoming a monastic myself. Uh, and by monastic, I mean serious monastic. I was, uh, I was doing some retreats with uh, Dominicans, uh, the Order of Preachers in our, uh, the Dominican House of Study over at Catholic University. I was a lifelong Methodist, raised United Methodist, well, raised Methodist for the first six years of my life, and then we united, and so then we became United Methodist. Perhaps we're going to become disunited Methodist now. I don't know. That's neither here nor there. Um, but at the time, I found it very appealing, the idea of community life, of a shared life, shared together, praying together seven times a day. I liked that idea, getting up in the middle of the night and praying. I liked the order and the direction. And of course, I was attracted to the order of preachers, uh, not because I fit in, they were wicked, bright people. That wasn't the part, but they were the order of preachers, you know, so I liked that part, you know, the preaching part, because I was convinced 30 years ago how amazing of a preacher I was. And so, uh, Fortunately, I've been disabused of that uh, thought about myself over the last 30 years. You all make sure I stay humble. And if you don't, I go home and have lunch after church every Sunday with this beautiful woman to whom I'm married. And she makes sure that I disabuse myself of any thought that I'm the most amazing preacher to ever live. Hey, I mean that in the best way, honey. You keep me humble. Keep me, uh, keep me grounded. All right, all right. Well, let's uh, change the subject back to almost 30 years ago. And I had I'd entered seminary at that point, uh, of course, the United Methodist Seminary. But I was really considering that maybe I wanted a communitarian life to take vows and to become serious about those vows. Uh, then I met Linda, and my life uh, changed uh, directions. Um, you can't move into the monastery, any of the Catholic orders of which I'm aware, with your spouse. Consequently, that was uh, just not possible. So I followed through, and here I am, the United Methodist clergy person that I am. Fast forward to two years ago, a little over two years ago, um, I applied for the living school to study with a Franciscan, of all people, uh, a Franciscan a former Cistercian, and an Episcopal priest and mystic, uh, the three core faculty at the Living School, and was accepted. And I have learned in the last two years I could never have made it as a monastic because mostly I am really attached to stuff. And therein lies the challenge of poverty, the vow of poverty the attachment we feel and the fulfillment we feel in the stuff we have. So much so that eventually it's no longer we who own the stuff, but the stuff who owns us. And our life is driven by the desire to possess more things, bigger things, faster things, uh, smarter things, you know, colder things, whatever they happen to be. You know, it's always... Uh, you know, the comparative to what you have now versus the better thing, whatever better is in your world of measurement. So enter into this whole picture uh, the recognition that I have to become more and more detached from things and enter into a picture where you actually read what Jesus says. You know, not 
through rose-colored glasses and think, well, he really didn't mean that for everybody. He just meant that for those 12 crackheads that he called to follow him and leave all of their stuff behind and, uh, and move on. Uh, you know, uh, so what if they had real jobs? And he said, no, come on, follow me. There's no real job here. Just trust that God will provide. Trust in your everyday life. And so those 12 set out with him. And over the centuries, ever since, people have taken vows because they wanted to be more like Jesus. And if you really want to know what a monastic life is, it's an attempt to live as closely as possible uh, a life like Jesus. And yet I can't believe that God would make it so impossible for us in everyday life to find a way to live more like Jesus, even if we didn't move into monasteries all by our, you know, with a group of people. There must be a way in everyday life to live the life of faith. And I, uh, it's from that perspective that I come at this first vow, the vow of poverty. Of course, I must first open the Bible to the place that I am looking for, and of course that is always a challenge because it's a new Bible. And so, because of course, I became attached to the idea of a new Bible, a new heavier one, because, of course, that gave it a special weight uh, with God and with me. Uh, and so there you go. Plus, I was tired of the Common English Bible. So if I convinced you to get one of those, I'm sorry. So I'm back to the New, new Revised Standard. And I'm looking at the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6 of Matthew beginning with verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think the vow of poverty is all about your heart. It's all about the attitude that you take, about the stuff that you're surrounded with. Now, I said in the beginning, or I made that allusion in the beginning, that the vow of poverty is not the vow of destitution. It's not getting rid of everything, living on the street, and having nothing. You know, there's plenty of abject poverty in the world. We don't have to go very far to discover some of it. God isn't asking you to live that kind of poverty. Uh, what God is inviting us to do is check the attitude of our heart about the things that surround us. Does the fact that your neighbor has a slightly bigger house affect the way you see your own house? Does the fact that your coworker makes slightly more than you affect the way you understand your value in the work that you do? Is it that it is constantly a comparison because poverty recognizes, a vow of poverty recognizes, first of all, that we share all things in common. And by all things in common, there are a number of ways to interpret that. The early church interpreted that as, hey, if you became a part of our church, what you did is you sold everything you owned, everything you owned, and you brought it here trusting that we would distribute it to everyone who needed it appropriately. So the guy who has a million dollars brings in a million dollars. And the guy who has five dollars uh, brings in five dollars. And the gal who's got 
a billion dollars, hands us a billion dollars. Because she realizes she could never spend a billion dollars and she doesn't need enough stuff for the billion dollars that she's got. And then for the person with five dollars who could have never made it with five, we meet their needs. And for the person who's got a million dollars who probably never could spend a million dollars either, we meet their needs. And suddenly there's a lot more to go around. If we understand everything we have in common, when you say to me, man, I'm really cold. I wish I had a coat. I take my coat off and hand it to you because I don't need the coat today. Now, it would probably be the other way around in, in, our, in our church because a lot of you walk around in shorts when it's 20 degrees outside, and I walk around you know, in a parka and seven layers, and I wish for one of those electric heating clothes that you just you know, could turn on with a battery and you know, zap up your temperature a little bit because I really don't wear short sleeve shirts until it's 90 degrees outside because that's my internal temperature. Uh, you know, hoping to get to 90 degrees. So at 90 degrees, I can go short sleeves and probably be fine. But it's recognizing that what we have is what we have in common. So I don't have to compete for you, what you have, because we share it. It's part of the universe. There may be only one, but there's enough for us to go around. We can be part of it. Because I don't need to store up things. The idea about storing up things is all about worrying about tomorrow. Jesus even goes on to say, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough to worry about for yourself. Worry about today. And if we really learned to trust one another, we'd be less driven by the fear there won't be enough tomorrow, and we'd recognize there will be enough tomorrow because if I'm in trouble, you'll help me. And if you're in trouble, I'll help you. We don't live that kind of world. We don't live in the vow of poverty, the vow of poverty that recognizes, first of all, we share everything in common. Second of all, we can live a lot more simply than we do. There was a time, there was a time when we imagined in our house that we would be just fine with one television set. And uh, we lived with that one television set. We got the first television set that we got as a couple we both brought television sets into our marriage. And the television set we brought into our marriage, I had a, I had a black and white 13-inch tube television set. I think Linda had like a 20-inch tube television set. I don't remember. Maybe it was another 13, but it was color. Oh, so we could watch color television on that one. And then we spent American Express points because don't leave home without it. And we got ourselves a, I don't know, a 37-inch. Oh, it felt huge. It, it felt big because I once carried it up and down the stairs. And the only way to do it was to carry it on my thighs like this. And I had bruises from here to here from carrying the television set. When we finally threw it away and we took it out to the curb, the trash guys tried to pick it up, dropped it, and smashed the tube in front of our house because that's how heavy it was, and those are strong guys. I've seen them. They pick up a lot of stuff. The bottom line was we had that one television set forever and ever and ever, and then it started fritzing out on us, 
and it could no longer connect to any of the devices we had in the house because the connections no longer existed on any other. You could have a converter that converted to another converter that converted to another converter and then broadcast to your television set from around the corner and get sort of a television image if you wanted to. So we bought another television set, a flat screen television, and that was our only television until our children went off to college, each of them acquiring at least one television apiece, Joshua acquiring three. I do not know why my son needs three television sets. He gave away one. So we're down to two television sets in Joshua's room, and one, I think he didn't give it away, it's at the cabin in West Virginia for emergencies because he might need to watch television where we don't get television at all. So, you know, I don't know. The truth is all the things we are so attached to and believe that we need in the world are probably things we could live without. And we could live more simply. And then there would be more to go around. And then this perceived need for violence, because the violence often comes from, I have, you have something, and I want that something. I've been told that I need to have that something to live. Uh, and so I'm going to take it from you if I can. I'm going to take it from you because that's, that's the way I get it. I mean, if you look at the way nation states even work today, it is all about the stuff somebody else has and that we need access to. And we make sure we can have access to it. So it's whoever has, you know, the most ability to acquire those things. The, the vow of poverty says, can't there be enough for everybody? Can't there be space enough for us to live together in this world in a way where it's not about who deserves to be rich and who deserves to be poor. You can't tell me that the billionaires deserve to have billions of dollars any more than the person who's on the corner begging for money deserves to have nothing. It's not about deserving. The deserving poor, there's no such thing as the deserving or undeserving poor. We all deserve to have the basic needs of our lives met one way or another. And if you think I'm going to communism or socialism or something else, I don't know. All I know is that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Everyone needs to be taken care of. There is no exception. No exception. There is. It, what makes someone my enemy is that they look different or act different or have a different belief than I do. Does that really make them my enemy? Or could they be my friend that disagrees with me? Lord knows I've got enough of those. Every once in a while I say to myself, I'm done with Facebook. Because the memes we share with each other are things we would never say to each other if we were together in person. Isn't it true? Would you really say those things to each other? Oh, the things we say. But a vow of poverty would mean I give up the right, what I perceive as my right, to treat the other as my possession. Linda and I had, we, yesterday was beautiful, as you know, so we went into D.C. to walk around because we could. And 
we found out that we could get tickets to go into the African American Museum. And we had a choice, go up and look at all the displays or start at the bottom floor, two, three floors below us, and walk through the history of where slavery came from. It was all indentured, uh, indentured servanthood to begin with that had a limited time. Uh, you know, slavery has always existed, but never has it been because of the color of a person's skin until we made it an institution. We, white Western people, <laughs> until we decided, ah, persons of color we can own them. That's just how far <laughs> opposite of the vow of poverty we went. Remember when Richard said in there, to live simply is not to imagine that we can treat any other person as if we possess them? That means people that work for you. You know, people who are employed by you. You don't own them, although these days <laughs> companies treat you as if they, you belong to them. You better be available 24-7 or else we'll get somebody else who will be. We'll get somebody else who will be. And they control you. Why do they control you? Because they determine your salary and whether or not you get paid and what you can think and what you can't think, and what you can do, and what you can't do. Because if you do the wrong thing, you don't work for them anymore. And all that stuff you worked for when you were climbing the ladder goes away. The vow of poverty invites us to look at ourselves and, you know, say, I'm valuable to God just because I am. Not because of what I have. We live in a society that tells you you're valuable because of what you have. And we value you more if you have more stuff. You have more voice. You have more vo vote. Sure, at the ballot box you only have one. Well, it depends <laughs> where you're voting, I guess. Uh, but the bottom line is, if you have more money, you can say it louder. You can say what you think or believe louder. Poverty says nobody is more valuable than the next. Anywhere, at any time. Especially not more valuable to God. I'm an ordained guy. You know, a bishop laid hands on me, made me glow in the dark, walk on the water, you know, know all of the mysteries of the universe. Ask me, I will tell you. And if you believe any of those last three things I say that laying hands on me did, you don't know me very well at all. But the truth of it all is, it made me no more precious to God than anyone else. Didn't make me any less precious to God either. It gave me an invitation to live a life of service. But you know what? It's the same life of service that you're invited to. Just in a different place, in a different way. There is no job you can do in this world in which you cannot serve the Lord. I watched those guys and they're all guys that come by my house every Tuesday morning and put stuff in the trash, you know, dump the stuff out of my trash can, out of my recycling bin. Uh, and I think, what would we do if our trash weren't collected by someone else? Something didn't happen to it. 
what would happen? It would all pile up, and there would be disease, and it would be gross. You know, we'd all be dumping it in our front yards and living in gross cities, you know. Do uh, you think it was, would have been cool? Sometimes you think it would be cool to live in the Middle Ages. People dump their chamber pots out the front window. If you don't know what a chamber pot is, you look it up on your own time. But that's what was in common. Now we live in a time where we have more, the average person has more, the average American anyway, has more than most royalty had during the Middle Ages. Access to good food and education, all that good kind of stuff. The vow of poverty invites us to see each other as all valuable to God. It invites us to have an attitude of heart where the stuff we have, including this Bible, if you were to walk up to me after church and say, I wish I had a Bible like that, James, then my heart should be this way. Take it. I've messed it up a little bit. I underlined some things, you know, there's some things in there I marked up, but if you want my messed up, marked up Bible, you can, you can have it. Had it for three weeks. Unfortunately, there's a lot of stuff already marked in here. Because you might need it more than I do. And if you ask me, it shouldn't be, oh, I'll see if I can find you one that maybe isn't quite as nice. Here, take it. Take it. It may make a difference. Sharing everything in common, living simply, and not being attached to any stuff. So much so that it controls it. So I want you to enter into the world. I have an assignment for you. You don't have to take a vow of poverty. You don't have to sell everything you have and bring it to church next week. Although if you'd like to, we would receive it. But uh, I'd like to invite you to look at your life and ask yourself, what are the things you value most? And if you find the things you value most are things... Maybe you ought to rethink what you value most. <laughs> if you discover that what you value most is relationships, your sense of connection with others in the community, with people like you and not like you. You value your relationship with God so much so that if God said, set everything down and talk to me for a minute, you'd set everything down and talk to him for a minute. Or if a friend needed you, you wouldn't say, but I got tickets to a play tonight. You'd say, I got time. The play will be there next week. Or maybe it won't be. And I won't have missed anything. What's most valuable to you? And then ask yourself, could I see all of my sisters and brothers in this world as equal in value to me to God? And if I really did, how would I treat them? Would it look different than the way I treat them now? And by the way, if I'm valuable to God, how am I treating myself? Do I need to be more respected in my own life and more loved? 
Am I always throwing myself under the bus? Poverty is an invitation to infinitely value everyone all around you and God. Not just the things you want. But who you are.